Okay, I have with me today Colonel Douglas McGregor. We're going to be going over the Russia-Ukraine war and uh, other things going on with the U.S. military and the U.S. government. Uh, Colonel McGregor, thank you for being on today's show. Sure. So over the weekend, uh, black smoke filled the air of Russia's Crimea region after an oil refinery was hit with a kamikaze drone from Ukraine. Um, two things. Do you think this attack was brought on in part by Victoria Newland of the, the, the state uh, bragging about U.S. military having intel on Crimea and the fact that those were open targets? Or is this Ukraine hitting Crimea uh, in retaliation for the, the missile strikes a few days uh, prior to that. The uh, <clears throat> strike that you're referring to was executed with a, an unmanned aerial vehicle that is a one-way uh, operation. You call it a kamikaze drone. Uh, it, it destroyed one oil tank. The refinery is continuing to operate. Uh, how many they fired or, or launched against uh, this target in Crimea is unclear. And it was in Sevastopol, by the way. <clears throat> and the uh, gasoline, oil, diesel, and so forth in Sevastopol uh, is completely unrelated to the conduct of ground operations in Ukraine. So it has no operational impact whatsoever. And having struck only one tank, uh, quite frankly, it's not going to make any difference to maritime operations for the Russians either. So this is uh, almost more symbolic than anything else. As far as the strikes that went in over the last 48 hours, they're very important. And I think it's useful to pause and talk a little bit about it because it indicates a change in targeting strategy on the Russian side. You'll recall that over several months, the Russians focused first and foremost on the energy grid. Then, in addition to the energy grid, they began to attack the air defense network even though the Ukrainians never had a fully integrated air defense system like the Russians, they still wanted to eliminate as much, if not all, of the air defense systems they could so that they would be able to use their air power without interruption. Now what they've done, having destroyed virtually all of the air defense capability, is that they're focusing on a very new set of targets that tells you something about what's coming when the ground dries and Russian ground forces can attack. Over the last 48 hours, the Russians went after clusters of ammunition, armored fighting vehicles, and troops. One of the most important target-rich areas uh, includes the rail yard in Krematorsk. And in that rail yard, the Ukrainians had built up 200 tons of ammunition. The 200 tons of ammunition, which is very important to Ukraine right now since it's virtually running out of ammunition, that 200-ton ammunition storage point was completely destroyed. So the Ukrainians lost all of that ammunition. In addition to that, they destroyed somewhere between 20 and 40 armored fighting vehicles. I don't know how many of these were on uh, <clears throat> on rail cars and how many of these were on the ground. I have no way of knowing. They also hit something in the neighborhood of about nine Ukrainian brigade headquarters, killing a 1,000 Ukrainian soldiers. This is important because the Ukrainians, of course, desperately need competent officers. They've lost a lot of officers, just as they've lost most of their well-trained fighters. So the nine brigades that were struck 
resulted in rather serious losses in terms of competent leadership. Now, there may have also been some allied officers there. We don't know. British, American, French. Uh, well, we may never know, or we may only find out months from now. But I would not be surprised if there were some of those mixed in, because we have been more and more involved down to increasingly lower levels with the conduct and planning of operations by the Ukrainians. <clears throat> then when you, you swing across to Kherson, across the other side of the Dnieper River, uh, the Ukrainians had moved down three uh, S-300 air defense systems. These are uh, missile carriers and radars, as well as a Gepard uh, anti-aircraft gun. This is a very useful gun from the standpoint of low-level drones, low-level helicopters, anything like that. It's the perfect weapon system. They were there to protect the S-300s. All three S-300s were destroyed along with their radars and the gun. So there is, frankly, no ability on the Ukrainian side at this point to protect forces as they move forward to close with the Russians. So I I think those strikes were a, a hugely successful operation. And frankly speaking, the loss of the one oil tank up in Sevastopol may look good on television, but it's largely irrelevant uh, to the outcome of operations. Okay, so it was more the the mainstream media, <clears throat> media needing to keep this narrative that Ukraine is striking back, that they are doing well, that they are equal to the task of taking on the Russian Federation Army. But in the end, it was just it was just a bunch of black smoke, literally. Yeah, it's uh, well, you hit an oil tank. Catches fire, you get lots of black smoke, but it didn't have any impact ashore. That's, that's the point. This was not in support of Russian ground forces or air forces. This was really a storage for civilian use as well as potentially maritime force use. In other words, Russian naval forces, but you've hit one tank. There are multiple tanks there and the refinery continues to operate. So frankly speaking, it's, it's meaningless. But yes, the, the mainstream media always treats anything the Ukrainians do as though it's a stupendous evidence for imminent victory. Whenever the Russians fall back from a village they've taken because they decide it's not worth defending, uh, it's easier to fall back to existing defensive positions. The, the loss of a village is sort of hailed as another great Ukrainian victory. We know in that part of the world, given the nature of the terrain, one or two villages up or back really aren't terribly meaningful. It's the same mentality. But I think the the change in the targeting strategy really is important. It also tells us a few other things. Russian intelligence is excellent. They know exactly where the Ukrainian brigade headquarters are. Now, we're also providing intelligence to the Ukrainians, And the Ukrainians recently hit a Russian brigade headquarters. So we're doing everything we can to provide them with information. But there's a vast difference between the destruction of nine Ukrainian brigade headquarters and everybody in them and over a thousand dead versus one Russian brigade headquarters. In other words, the difference in capability is profound. And I think even though we give them excellent intelligence, they, they just can't exploit it on the scale that they would like to be able to do. So, I mean, so that falls in line with these Pentagon papers of a one to seven or one to nine ratio where, okay, yeah, you took out a hundred Russians, but they took out 900 of you. Mathematically, you're, you're behind the eight ball big time. Yeah, I think so. As far as Victoria Newland is concerned, I'm sure that, uh, 
you know, people will try to connect her to the operational conduct of the war. I, <clears throat> I don't think, uh, excuse me, <clears throat> I don't think she's been appointed a general in the Ukrainian army yet. So I rather doubt that, but th- that's not to underestimate her influence. I mean, it's enormous. She has single-handedly uh, steered this country and our country, by the way, into a confrontation with Russia. She deserves credit for her key role in that tragedy. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Okay. Thank you for that. So, um, over on redacted where you've been interviewed a few times, I, I don't fully understand the details, but the day that Russia, uh, this was around the, the one year anniversary, uh, they brought out their, um, their hypersonic missile. I can't remember what it's called. It starts with a K. Um, mm-hmm. and they, they, they reported that they had also hit like a major NATO underground base that, that took out, uh, quite a few people. Do you know any details on that? Cause I, I've been able to find a little bit in international <clears throat> news, but when it comes to the United States mainstream media, they're silent on it. Well, frankly, it's been very hard to confirm. There was a strike. It killed lots of people. Now I've had people tell me the strike was somewhere in the neighborhood of Kiev. Uh, which frankly makes more sense to me than the argument that it was in the vicinity of Lvov. I don't know. Uh, and frankly, you know, we, we keep our eyes and ears open for the arrival of any coffins from Europe that contain Americans. And thus far, we haven't seen any show up. That doesn't mean they haven't been moved into the United States if Americans were killed. We just don't know. And the mainstream media, as you point out, is is very, very complicit in trying to present a picture that they hope will maintain support for Ukraine. But the truth is, Ukraine is losing badly. And I think there there have been a number of interviews recently that confirm it. You've had the Polish chief of staff, who has made it abundantly clear that Poland does not have the ammunition on hand to sustain any offensive operation against the Russians, and frankly argues that there are Stores of ammunition have been vastly depleted by the Ukrainians. That's number one. Number two, that he's repeatedly said the Russians are quite competent. Their soldiers are excellent, very tough, trying to sort of dispel this false notion that's been so prevalent in the Western media that Russians are incompetent, stupid, slow, no initiative, and so forth. There's no evidence for that. And then finally, you have all of this bluster coming out of Prigozhin, who runs the 40,000-man Wagner group. And he periodically makes statements and it upsets people. Uh, I think Prigozhin, and this is based on my sources that tell me he has aspirations to run for office in Russia after the war is over. So he seems to bloviate whenever the opportunity presents itself. The, the fact that uh, Putin tolerates it uh, and suggests that maybe he finds Prigozhin useful insofar as Prigozhin periodically embarrasses army generals or offends them. You know, President Putin has made a couple of important visits to the front down in the south and up in Belarusia. And I think he's very anxious to get this offensive off the ground as soon as the ground is dry. And so if Prigozhin says, well, you know, these the troops that are on my left or general, whatever his name is, isn't moving fast enough. I think Putin may regard that as potentially useful to spur action on the Russian side. Incidentally, uh, the chief of logistics on in the Russian army, whose name I cannot pronounce, uh, was just relieved of his duties. 
And the word is that the FSB discovered that he was effectively stealing and trying to resell engines for the T-14 Armada tank series. Now, why the man would have done such a thing is beyond my imagination. I mean, there's corruption everywhere at some point in time in Russia. We know that. But it also suggests that they have known this for some time, and they chose now as the point to reveal it. So I think perhaps uh, Putin and the commander-in-chief Garazimov were both fed up with uh, the performance of the logistics commander. So they, they got rid of him. That's a good thing. It's always healthy when you remove senior officers. This is something we don't understand. When you, when two things that happen in military affairs that, that really make soldiers happy. First of all, if a general goes out and is killed or wounded, everybody will say, well, why would the soldiers be happy about that? The reason is very simple. The general is with them. He's at the front. He's demonstrating that he shares the danger with them. So the Russian generals, we've had many of them killed. People act in the West as though this is something disastrous. No, it isn't. It's viewed very positively inside the Russian army. The Russian soldiers are not like American soldiers in this regard. They don't follow people that they don't trust. And large numbers of senior officers in the Russian army have been removed over the last 14, 15 months for that reason. And then secondly, I think it's also because uh, Putin wants to demonstrate that he's in charge, he's in control. So removing individual senior officers is something that reinforces, you know, his position. And the soldiers also have great a great deal of respect and confidence in Putin. He may not be universally popular. I'm not saying he's the, you know, the, the equivalent of some sort of television personality in the United States. But I think they respect him and they trust him because he acts decisively to deal with these things. So all of this points to a very serious offensive coming soon. Uh, and I don't know if any of your viewers have seen it. Uh, there's a video circulating that shows a, a Wagner armored personnel carrier trying to drive off-road near Bakhmut. And it's driving around in what looks like six or seven feet of uh, slush and mud. In other words, it's it's impossible. And that's what people here just don't understand. The mud there is horrific. And the good news is the mud cuts in both directions, stops Russians and Ukrainians. It's agnostic. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you for that information. Um, so, uh, within the last week, Russia, uh, basically rains missiles down on, uh, Uman, Uman, uh, kills 26 people. Uh, Ukrainian generals respond to this by saying that they will ramp up an attack on Moscow. Do they literally mean Moscow, Moscow, or is this a, just a way of saying against the Russian Federation army? Cause they're two very different things in my mind. Well, the border is a thousand miles long. <clears throat> if you're sitting behind the Russian border, you've got a thousand miles of terrain to protect. Remember that Ukrainians and Russians are largely indistinguishable from each other. And almost any Ukrainian can speak Russian, uh, usually pretty well, although they too have an accent that is detectable. But <clears throat> certainly if you're going to pick people to infiltrate into Russia, you're going to be sure that their Russian is impeccable. 
And that's not terribly difficult for the Ukrainians. So I think uh, the idea that uh, they could pull off some sort of attack uh, inside Russia against some building or target in Moscow is potentially believable. I mean, I, I don't think it's impossible by any means. The real question, of course, Steve, is how does this help Ukraine? I mean, it's unclear to me that killing a few a few significant actors on the stage in Moscow would help Ukraine's position. That seems very doubtful. Probably make it much worse. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm sure that this is just from not having enough military experience, uh, but there there were a couple of members of Congress in the last week that were publicly saying that the Pentagon should send cluster bombs to Zelensky. Um, my my understanding is not only are these bombs illegal, but they're they're horrible. Can you answer that and then maybe tell my audience what the what these bombs are? Well, cluster munitions. It looks analogous to a baseball. Imagine that you've got a thousand baseballs that you can launch at a particular target, and these balls shower the target area. The bad news is that out of uh, a thousand, perhaps a hundred to a hundred and fifty don't explode. Okay. That means that you now have an explosive device lying around on the ground. This happened to us back in ninety and ninety one. We used a lot of cluster ammunition against the Iraqi army. And when the war ended, a lot of these unexploded munitions were still on the ground. And you ended up having people stupidly pick them up. Sometimes they were picked up by soldiers in the, that were logisticians from the rear of the army that had not fought in the war. They came forward for some reason, didn't know what they were looking at, <clears throat> picked it up, threw it like a baseball. And by the time it reached the individual they threw it to, it exploded in either killed or wounded them. We had the same problem with children, you know, in, in uh, up in Iraq. They went through these areas where there were cluster bombs and injured themselves. That's one of the reasons that we don't like them. There are too many duds, <clears throat> too many unexploded pieces of ordnance. The fact that Congress wants to send more, you know, to me is uh, bizarre. Right now, <clears throat> there's an estimate, new estimate. I haven't got it in hand yet to look at it in detail. But we think the Ukrainian army has lost nearly 10,000 armored fighting vehicles since the war began. That's incredible. 10,000? They haven't really gone that far. And that means that the Russians have been extraordinarily effective at targeting and destroying these things, number one. But number two, it suggests that the wastage over there is irreplaceable. You know, how do you make up for 10,000 lost armored fighting vehicles at this point? Well, it's virtually impossible. So sending anything more at this stage of the game may make people here feel good. Obviously, it makes members of the Congress, military, industrial, congressional complex happy, since this eventually puts money in their pockets in one way or another. But it's it's not going to change the outcome over there. Yeah. What, what, that's so interesting that you say that, because part of General Milley's testimony before Congress was he he was asked i i think by the senator from mississippi you know why why are you so confident in ukraine's ability to still win and and he said it's it's because we've done so much damage to russian armored vehicles but it, it sounds like it's just the opposite uh, i think it is the, well you just had this general kaboli 
who is the supreme command uh, commander of Allied Powers Europe in shape, and he's the NATO commander, if you will. Not the most impressive speaker I've ever listened to, but he recently testified and said that it's in his judgment, and he, he put it strangely, uh, there's not much evidence that the Russian armed forces have been seriously harmed uh, by the war. And then he tried to shift the discussion into undersea warfare about submarines. Well, the truth is that the Russians have never taken the heavy casualties that were claimed by the Ukrainians and, and by the Western media. The Russians have not lost 10,000 armored fighting vehicles. Uh, you know, the bottom line is the truth is seeping out. And what Kaboli was really doing, I think, is telling people the truth in a sort of convoluted manner. We haven't really damaged the Russians that much. Because remember, the, the goal of this bizarre operation is we want to damage Russia, ostensibly for the purpose of preventing them from ever again invading another country. Of course, we don't bother to point out that we've done everything in our power to bring this war on and present an existential threat from Ukraine to them. But, you know, the bottom line is I think everybody is beginning to sort of say, well, you know, the Ukrainians have done a great job, but but it's not going that well. We're not able to replace the losses. The Russians aren't harmed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think they're preparing people for the inevitable. And I, I read something in The Hill recently, an unnamed source. I always love this. I wish I could say that when I write things, an unnamed source <laughs> or an anonymous source. says that uh, the Biden White House has instructed Zelensky that he has a choice. He either counterattacks or he makes arrangements to surrender. Well, if that's true, that's a pretty grim outlook. The real question you have to ask yourself if you're sitting in Kiev is why should I sacrifice what little military power I have left if I'm faced with that sort of choice, that sort of self-inflicted catastrophe? Yeah. Uh, former CIA agent Ray McGovern was recently on my show. He said that he believes it won't be e even 12 more months before Zelensky's taken out either uh, peaceably, peace of, peacefully by NATO or the, uh, Nazi battalion. Uh, but either way, he said, I don't think Putin's going to take him out. I think it will be his own people or NATO that will say, here's a bunch of money. Go do something else. What, what are your thoughts on Zelensky over the next year? Zelensky is someone that I like to compare to Macron. What was Macron before he became president of France? I think he was a bank teller who was identified by George Soros and others as a marketable candidate. He was then groomed, prepared, and launched, ends up as president of France. Uh, I don't know how much longer Mr. Macron is going to last, because I think he too has been identified as uh, an empty suit who is simply implementing the quote-unquote globalist agenda. And that's behind much of the discontent in France. I think Zelensky's similar. Here's this man that was a, a quasi-comedian who uh, liked to dress up as women and uh, do funny things on stage with others. And someone decides that they're going to make him into a viable political candidate. And he was picked up by a quote-unquote oligarch, I mean, you could call Soros and, and many others oligarchs, too. He's an oligarch named Kolomoisky. And Kolomoisky decides 
that he can make him president of Ukraine. And so he runs and he wins largely because he promised to end the war. He ran on a platform of peace. And of course, Zelensky was a native Russian speaker. He did not speak Ukrainian. And uh, everybody knew that, but the Ukrainian people as a whole were sick of everything and thought, well, if we vote for this man, he'll end the war with the Russians. We don't want a war with the Russians. We want to get on with life. Well, we know the rest of the story. Everything changes once he's in office. He, too, is seen as pursuing an agenda that is hardly aligned with the interests of the Ukrainian people. So, you know, is he going to be shot by his own people or assassinated? That's eminently possible. But I have no way of knowing. I know that he is understandably quite paranoid. I'm told that Mr. Macron at this stage has very tight security for the same reasons. I think we're entering a period where a lot of people at the top of a lot of governments who have been pursuing policies that are antithetical to the interests of their people are going to be very worried about surviving in office. Okay, thank you. Uh, Final question, um, and this builds on something that you and I have talked about on the show before. Uh, You've mentioned that you believe this war will either end NATO or it won't it won't resemble what it looks like now. Do you see Macron's uh, actions in France where he meets with Xi Jinping and basically publicly announces that we will side with China on Taiwan versus the United States as the first crack in NATO? Or where, where do you, how do you see NATO changing? Because for me, that was very shocking. And even Poland came out last week and said, Maybe Macron is right. Maybe maybe Western Europe has relied on the United States for far too long. Well, I think it was Angela Merkel uh, when President Trump was in office, who after meeting with Trump, who was very forceful in, in arguing that all the Europeans should become their own first responders. In other words, stop relying on us to cross thousands of miles of ocean and uh, airspace and and rescue you in the event of a crisis or conflict. You've got to be able to defend yourselves. She was very offended by that, as though we had some sort of permanent and solemn obligation to defend her and Germany forever. And so she said, well, perhaps it's time now for us to consider independence, that we should be an independent force on the stage. And guess what happened? Nothing. It was empty rhetoric. Listen, until we leave Europe, until we bail out of these places, I don't see a lot happening. I mean, it's, it's human nature. Why, why would you suddenly decide to spend money when as long as the United States armed forces are prepared to defend you, you don't have to? It's a very simple equation. One plus one equals two. So you've got to take one away and then you have one equals one. We've got to, we've got to get to the point where they understand that we're serious. What demonstrates our seriousness? Withdrawal. Now that's the first part. Second part of your question is, will NATO change? I think that this war in Ukraine is fundamentally changing, not just, you know, America's relationship with Europe and European affairs. I think it's changing uh, America's relationship with the world. And, you know, no one in Europe is interested in going to war with China. It's just stupid. They have no interest in a war with China. They want to do business with the Chinese. Now, we've decided we don't like that and would like to prevent that. Well, good luck. 
You know, it's like stopping the Mississippi River from running into the Gulf of Mexico. People are going to do business with China. By the way, so will we in some form. Again, President Trump's argument was always very simple. If we're going to do business with these people, let's do it on fair terms. In other words, we're not going to do business if if they benefit and we don't. It has to be mutually beneficial. Very simple equation. Again, that makes sense. But going to war with China over Taiwan, 6,000 miles from the United States, and probably the same or more from Europe, no. No one's interested in doing it. By the way, there's no evidence that the Chinese are preparing to invade the place. That's a lot of nonsense. So I think the the bottom line is that if if this ends, will there still be a NATO? Well, it'll, it, the facade will exist for some time. Will it have any content? Doubtful. Will it last beyond a few years? I, I don't know. I mean, you know, the Europeans, Europeans are very conservative people. I'm sure there'll be a building with NATO as a, you know, flag in front of it. Will it mean anything? I don't think so. I think the Europeans collectively have got to forge a future for themselves. Doesn't mean they have to be anti-American. Doesn't mean they have to be hostile to Russia. It means they've got to forge their own future. I think they're realizing that. But nothing in that connection will happen until these governments are gone, until Schultz and his crew are gone, until Macron is gone, until Britain has another or maybe a new series of prime ministers that are finally figuring out that they can't behave as they have in the past. Then things will change. And and by the way, here in the United States, I don't expect a lot to change until the economy tanks and the financial system implodes. I think we're getting closer, but until that occurs, Americans aren't aren't going to take real action, I suspect. It's in it's in human nature. Yeah. Yeah. Europe is much more agitated than the United States with with their leaders. Uh Colonel Douglas McGregor, thank you for coming on, sharing your insight, your wisdom. We we value you. Uh we appreciate your service to our country and thank you for coming on today. Sure, Steve. Thank you.